The book of Daniel has similarities with the book of Revelation. Two truths that are similar are the truths that God's kingdom is forever and that God will crush, destroy every earthly kingdom. In Daniel, the superpower is Babylon until Persia comes on the scene. In the book of Revelation, the superpower is the Roman Empire. In both places, we see on the one hand that the kingdom of man seems to triumph and the people of God suffer. But on the other hand, we see in both contexts that God's kingdom is forever and the people of God will triumph in Christ and they will reign with Christ forever and ever. We grieve, don't we? We mourn as Christians that those who are citizens of the kingdom of man and not citizens of the kingdom of God, we mourn that they will be judged. Don't we mourn for that? We rejoice that we who are in the kingdom of God, that we will reign with Christ forever, and we rejoice that those who are outside the kingdom of God can come into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God will destroy every empire, will he not? God will destroy every dynasty. Every dynasty will fall. It's happened all throughout history. Every superpower has been or will be conquered. From Babylon to Greece to Rome and to the U.S. of A. But God's kingdom is forever. And that's our message from Daniel Chapter 2 this morning, God's kingdom is forever. There are two truths I want us to think about related to this message. Number one, God will destroy every earthly kingdom. Number two, we must be faithful to our sovereign king, Jesus Christ, who rules over an eternal kingdom with his people forever. First, a word about context. Remember last week's sermon, Pastor Jamal introduced the book of Daniel with the sermon from chapter one. And he taught us that Daniel and his three friends and the Jewish people were in exile because of the sins of Israel and Judah. The Jews were held captive by their captors, and their captors forced them to live as a people in a foreign land, required them to assimilate within a Babylonian culture, compelled them to speak the Babylonian language, made them take Babylonian names, and urged them to adopt a Babylonian way of life. But Daniel and his Friends, remain faithful to our God by refusing to assimilate within the Babylonian culture when that assimilation meant they had to deny faith in their God and to deny their Jewish heritage. For example, 
In chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, Daniel tells us that they fasted and they prayed to God. Brothers and sisters, Daniel's God is our God. Let me say that again. Daniel's God is our God, who's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and we are God's people. We are the people of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Daniel remained faithful to his God because he is an eternal God. Daniel remained faithful to his God because his God, our God, has an eternal kingdom. Daniel lived not for the kingdom of this world which will perish, but he lived for the kingdom of God which will never end. Our God, brothers and sisters, is the only God. He's the all-powerful God, the wise God, the sovereign God, the God through whom we come to know in a saving way our Lord Jesus Christ as he revealed his son to us in the incarnation and saved us from our sins via the cross and the resurrection. The kingdom of our God will never be destroyed and his sovereignty will never come to an end. That's Daniel's God. And brothers and sisters, if you know Christ this morning, that's your God today. So here's my first point. God will destroy every earthly kingdom. The kingdom of man is no match for the kingdom of God. I see this in the first 43 verses, but I want to summarize the story for you. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream that hinders his sleep. He summons his pagan magicians and sorcerers to interpret his dream, but they cannot. In fact, after buying some time, upon hearing the king threaten them with death, if they could not rightly interpret his dream, some of them said in verses 10 and 11, quote, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Of course, their response infuriates the king, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be killed. As the king's servants were about to kill the wise men, the wise men sought Daniel for help and his friends. Then Daniel promises he would interpret the dream in verses 14 through 16. Daniel returns to his house, he explains the situation to his friends, and he urges them in verse 18 to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And God answers their prayers. In verse 19, 
and he reveals to Daniel the meaning of the dream. And so Daniel praises our God for this revelation in verses 20 through 23. And just listen to how Daniel prays. We should pray like this. He praises God for his eternal name and his eternal wisdom and insight or might. He praises God because of his sovereign power to change times and seasons. He praises God for his sovereign power to remove kings from their thrones and to place kings on their thrones. He praises God for his sovereign power to give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He praises God for his sovereign power to reveal deep and hidden things. He praises God for his knowledge to know what is in the darkness. He praises God because light dwells with him. He praises God because he gave Daniel wisdom and might, and he made known to Daniel the interpretation of the king's dream. After he prays, Daniel goes to the king's men, informs them he could interpret the king's dream. And he asked them not to destroy the wise men of Babylon in verse 24. They bring Daniel before the king, and he interprets the dream in verses 24 through 43. And Daniel, I mean, just listen to this story. Daniel informs the king the dream is both about his kingdom and about the rise and destruction of all earthly kingdoms, including his kingdom, at the hands of Daniel's sovereign God. Verses 36 to 43. In other words, Daniel spoke truth to power. He did not manipulate the dream. These kingdoms he mentions, they likely refer to the Babylonian kingdom in verses 36 through 38, the Medo-Persian kingdom in verse 39, the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great, verse 39, and the Roman Empire in verses 40 through 43. The basic takeaway, I think, from the interpretation of the dream is God will destroy every earthly kingdom. Notice, for example, verse 44. He'll destroy every earthly kingdom and set up his eternal kingdom with an eternal king. Listen to the verse. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it, God's kingdom, shall stand forever. Amen. The kingdom of God will stand forever, and the people of God will stand forever. So says the dream. God will destroy, brothers and sisters, every earthly kingdom. I want you to hear that this morning. We weep because of that. We weep because there are people whom we know and love who don't know Jesus. Unless they bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they will fall under the tsunami of God's wrath. From Rome 
to Babylon. Many kingdoms have been destroyed within history, but every kingdom will be destroyed at the end of history when Jesus Christ returns from heaven to earth to separate the sheep from the goat. No earthly kingdom will stand, not even the good old U.S. of A., folks. Therefore, point number two, we must be faithful to our sovereign king, Jesus Christ, who rules over an eternal kingdom. We must live for the city of God, not for the city of man. We must live for the city of God as we live within the city of man. Because God's kingdom is forever. Notice verses 44 and 45, and then verse 47. Verse 44 and 45. Let me read them again. Y'all still with me? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. In other words, Daniel is saying, this is the word of God. And then verse 47. Listen to the king's response. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, I love this line, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees another vision for another king. And in that chapter, Daniel sees the ancient of days, who is God, sitting on a throne. And he sees the Son of Man coming to the ancient of days. And the Son of Man we know is Jesus Christ from the New Testament. And in that vision, Daniel sees the ancient of days give the Son of Man authority and dominion over all the nations, and the nations give their allegiance not to King Nebuchadnezzar, not to King Darius, not to King Cyrus, but to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, every kingdom will fall, but God's kingdom remains forever. Every king will be stripped of his power, but every king will bow their knees to Jesus and Jesus' kingdom and his kingship is forever. A few applications here. How we apply this text today. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. This cannot be merely academic for us. The world is too chaotic for us to believe in an abstract way in God's sovereignty. We must feel in our bones that God is in absolute control over everything. If we don't believe that he is, we will be incapable of getting out of the bed. The world is just too difficult. Sin is just so powerful. But God's sovereignty triumphs over sin and the devil and death and hell and the grave. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over kings. 
and nations. And he works out all things in accordance with his purposes for his glory and for our good. Do you need God, brothers and sisters, do you need God today to make a way for you? When it seems as though there is no way, is there some need that you have, some affliction, some form of suffering that you have? Is there something impossible in your life for which you need your sovereign God to stoop down by his grace and work out for your good? Well, God can make a way. Where there appears to be no way, he is powerful enough to work out your circumstances. He's powerful enough. Hear this. Do you believe this? He is powerful enough to hate evil and to use it for his purposes for your good. Just look at what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. He was not a Christian. (laughs) He was not a Jew. But God used him to bring about his purposes through Daniel and his people. God can make a way when there appears to be no way. It doesn't mean your life will be easy, but it does mean God will always be faithful. Do you believe that today? He is faithful. I think in my own life, there are things that God has worked out in my life, and I looked at those situations, and I said, there is no way, and God made a way. Second, our God is sovereign And he shows his sovereign power to Daniel. He's the one who gives Daniel the interpretation of that dream. Daniel didn't create that interpretation himself. Daniel prayed to his sovereign God. And God revealed that dream to him. God was the one who took Daniel into exile. God was the one who placed those kings on their thrones. But God used Daniel and other human agents to work out his will. So hear this this morning. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And humans are responsible for every decision that we make. And God uses ordinary means, human beings as the means by which he works out his sovereign will. You understand that? Do you understand that? Do you understand that? (laughs) He uses unfaithful characters. He used the Romans, Pontius Pilate, and the Jews. They were guilty for executing God's son, and God was not guilty. But that was the means by which God worked out his redemptive purposes for his people. That's the God we serve. He doesn't read the papers and then respond to what's happening in the culture. He's guiding history for his purposes and for our good, and he's using people, you and me, as means by which to work out his will. Daniel was faithful to God, but God used Daniel. And he gave Daniel favor because of his faithfulness. He gave Daniel, for example, example, favor amongst pagan kings in Persia and in Babylon. One way we see God's faithfulness to Daniel 
because of Daniel's faithfulness to God is when he gives Daniel and his friends the finest education and the finest of privileges and power in Babylon. And they did not have to compromise their faith in God for God to give them favor. You understand that? God allowed Daniel and his friends to flourish as Jews. And they were faithful to God in a foreign land. I want to say this as a pastor. Some of y'all need to learn how to do this. Some of us need to learn how to stop compromising our faith in Christ by becoming a splitting image of the world in which we live. But others of us need to learn how to use the common grace norms of the culture to advance the gospel of the kingdom without compromising our faith. There are two extremes here. One extreme is you believe you've got to become the world to reach the world. The other extreme is you think you must withdraw from the world and contemplate your own theological navels and not reach the world. Both of those extremes hinder the advancement of the kingdom. And we need to learn as Christians how to live like the people of God in a foreign land, and that's all of us in this room, while using the common grace norms of the cultures in which we live in order to advance the kingdom of God without compromising our faith in Jesus. For example, the artist who uses art as a means by which to proclaim the glories of God through that art in ways that you cannot unless you have the gift of being an artist. A poet who uses lyrics to proclaim the glories of Christ and to advance the kingdom of God using poetry the cultural norms without compromising faith in Jesus as a means by which to preach the gospel to a context that might not hear the gospel otherwise. Does that make sense? That retail worker who's faithfully doing his or her job in retail, just doing what he or she's supposed to do, honoring Jesus, being a good employee. And the Lord, by his grace, blesses his or her work and opens up opportunities when the time is right to speak gospel truth in ways that he or she might not be able to otherwise unless he or she was a retail worker. That actor or actress who uses theater to proclaim the glories of Christ in a way that you can unless you're in that context without compromising the gospel. That addict who is fighting against addiction with all of his or her might and the power of the Spirit and with the help of common grace resources and the people of God as he or she is fighting against that addiction, serving as a channel through which to speak truth, gospel truth into the lives of other addicts without compromising faith in Christ, that brother or sister who's fighting against the lust of the flesh, using his or her gifts to speak truth and live truth in ways that don't compromise the gospel as he or she is fighting against the lust of the flesh. You want to advance the kingdom of God? 
We've got to learn how to be ordinary Christians, and we're all ordinary, on the ground with real people in the real world. (laughs) And you don't have to, quote unquote, go into the ministry to do that. We're all in the ministry if you're saved today. Look at your life and ask yourselves this question. How can I, as a Christian, in my social situation, in my context, without compromise, advance the gospel of the kingdom and ask the Lord to use you as a means by which you do that. We all have got to learn how to code switch, how to use the vernacular norms of our culture without adopting the godless ideologies that the world adopts. Y'all feel me this morning? For example... What you do in St. Matthews or in J-Town, I'm from J-Town, what you do in St. Matthews or in J-Town might not work in Shelby Park in terms of advancing the gospel. What we do in Shelby Park might not work in China. To be a good missionary means you live in the world, but you're not of the world. It doesn't mean you isolate yourself from the world and just avoid everybody. Neither does it mean you adopt the world's ways to reach the world. But we have to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, using common grace norms by which to preach the gospel. For example, I don't speak Spanish, unfortunately. My wife is from Costa Rica, and she does. I don't speak Spanish. I wish I did. So I'm going to have a hard time speaking Spanish to someone who doesn't know Jesus. In fact, it would be impossible for me to do that. But if I go to a Spanish context, I've got to adopt a Spanish way of life insofar as that adoption does not compromise the gospel so that I can effectively reach the culture, you see. Does that make sense? Advancing the kingdom. Sometimes we've got to be undercover, brothers and sisters, right? In order to advance the gospel in context that would be otherwise hostile to it. So it would be unwise for most of you in here to go to your job tomorrow and start talking to your boss about Jesus. Be unwise, unless you teach at a Christian school or work at a church. But in your normal rhythm of life, you're faithfully serving Jesus, you're living your life for Jesus. Maybe, as you do your work well, maybe there might come a point where your boss says, hey man, or woman, why do you do such a good job? And you could say, let's go have a coffee. (laughs) Speaking truth in ways that are consistent with the gospel. Perhaps we're feeling especially patriotic today. In light of July 4th holiday, we just celebrated on Thursday. Let me say this with absolute clarity. I am thankful to live in a country where I was not born as a slave. If I lived in the 1700s, 17th century, and the 18th century, I would have been a slave. I'm thankful to live in a country where I will not be lynched for the color of my skin. Lord willing, right? At least there are laws in place that should protect that. 
I thank God that I live in a country where I can teach at a school that I could not have even applied for if I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. I'm thankful for those men and women in military who shed their blood for us to enjoy this privilege of worshiping Jesus without the government busting in and telling us what we can say. So I'm thankful. Love for country is okay until that love becomes idolatry. You can be thankful for and love the country in which you live or from which you originate without condoning the many evil things that exist in this country and in other countries. When love of country becomes or creates a culture of nationalistic zeal and ethnocentrism, this can create the kind of fears that lead to hate. Now, I want y'all to feel me on this, and by which I don't mean y'all touch me, I mean y'all listen, all right? (laughs) God does not worship the kingdom of man. Jesus Christ was not a United States citizen. He was a brown refugee. He was an immigrant. I'm pulling this from Matthew. If you got a problem with this, you got a problem with Matthew. <laughs> That's Matthew's gospel. Now, some scholar named Matthew. He was poor. And with his parents' help, he fled for his life to seek asylum in Egypt because of an evil tyrant named Herod who was afraid of losing his political power. He suffered systemic injustice at the hands of the Roman Empire. When he was wrongly convicted, wrongly incarcerated, and he was subjected to a capital punishment on a Roman cross at the hands of the empire, at the hands of the unbelieving Jews. But Jesus Christ did not, he did not bow the knee to King Caesar or Governor Pontius Pilate in order to be exonerated. He remained faithful to his father's will in a society in which he lived, wherein he used the common grace norms of that culture without compromising the gospel. For example, he ate food. He went to Christian parties (laughs) or Jewish parties. Daniel did not worship the evil empire of Babylon or Persia. Jesus did not worship the kingdom of man, and neither should we. Every system, every kingdom, every nation, every country has total depravity in it, has evil in it. We are not sinners because that's what we do. We do sin because that's who we are. We are conceived in sin, and sinful people create systems that are dominated by the power of sin. It's all around us in the world. But there are also a lot of common grace norms that we experience that are good and right. But the only way any of us in this room will escape God's judgment at the end of history is if we are members of the kingdom of God through the King, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. 
If you are a non-believer this morning, you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of of man, and and you can today, however, be saved from God's judgment and enter into the kingdom of God and be saved from God's wrath and reign with Christ and his people forever. And those of us who are Christians, we are dual citizens, citizens of the kingdom of heaven and citizens of this world. And one thing we must do as Christians is work hard to be faithful to our King, Jesus Christ, in wise ways that honor the gospel and the word of God. Let me say it this way. Neither 44 nor 45 is our King. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans are our people. Yes, we have political affiliations and political alliances in this room. I know that. But what I'm saying is our ultimate allegiance needs to be to King Jesus and his clear word and his kingdom. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. And red and Asian and black and white and foreign and domestic Christians scattered throughout the world are our people. Our people are those Pakistani Christians. You believe this? Our people are those Pakistani Christians. Those Chinese Christians and African Christians who are faithful to Jesus Christ in the midst of intense persecution. Our people as Christians are those Hispanic brothers and sisters who are faithful to Jesus Christ. Our people are those faithful Christians, black and brown and Asian and white in this country who love Jesus and his kingdom more than they love political power. Our people are those Haitian Christians who are faithful to Jesus. Our people are those diverse dialects and accents with diverse ideological, political ideas scattered throughout the world, but who, is, who are likewise committed to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Those are our people as the people of God. And if you don't understand this this morning, you don't understand what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. The fact that I can call someone a brother or a sister from a different part of the world who has a different set of customs from what I have is a supernatural work of God. And that's the kingdom for which we should be living. Now hear this carefully. Yes, we can enjoy the blessings and the benefits and the privileges that we have. I enjoy getting my paycheck signed once a month. I don't work for free. I enjoy food. I enjoy having benefits. I'm not saying we withdraw. Remember what I said earlier? We don't withdraw from the world, right? We live in the world, but we're not of the world, which means we don't behave in a godless way like the world as we're living in the world and using at times the normal cultural rhythms that are not antithetical to the gospel. You feel that? Brothers and sisters, we don't feel that. If we don't feel that, the next election is going to divide us no matter who wins. The next tragedy 
will divide us. We have to remember as citizens of the kingdom of God, our number one allegiance is to Jesus and to his people. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us. Let's pray that God would help us to be faithful to like Daniel, like Jesus, who lived in an evil society. Let's pray that we would be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves as we use privileges and influence and power and opportunity to advance the gospel of the kingdom in ways that empower the people of God to flourish and in ways that advance God's kingdom. Let's pray that we would love one another. Let's pray that regardless of who sits in City Hall or the governor's mansion or the White House, that we will be faithful to Jesus Christ and his people above all. Can I get at least one amen on that? <laughs> Let's pray that God's kingdom would never end. And let's be like Christian in that novel, Pilgrim's Progress, who's journeying toward the celestial city, the heavenly city, and who makes it because he keeps his eye on the prize of the kingdom of God. If you're not a believer this morning, we invite you to come on in and get your paperwork through Jesus' shed blood. Get naturalized today by turning from your sin and trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that God raised him from the dead for your sin, and you become immediately a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. In fact, 1 Peter promises it's going to be harder as you live as a stranger in this land. I don't know about you, there's so many times I just don't feel like I belong often in many places. That's a good feeling in one sense because this is not our home. Our kingdom is in heaven. So brothers and sisters, God's kingdom is forever. So let's pray with God's help we'll be faithful to that kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open up our hearts to this word today and help us to learn more and more and more what it means to be a child of the king. Help us to know that you are a great God who works and moves in mysterious ways. And the most mysterious way you've worked is by sending Jesus, your son, to bleed on the cross for our sins and you raised him from the dead. And so God, may we as your people live like your people May you help us to love your kingdom more than we love the city of man. May we, yes, love the city of man, pray for the city of man, seek to do good to the city of man, seek to restore the city of man, seek to, to shine truth into the city of man. But Lord, may we not for one moment think the city of man is the city of God. So Father, we pray as we love our city and our community, that we would love it as children of the King. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples called the Lord's Supper. And he broke bread. 
And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this bread represents my broken body, broken for your sins. And then he also shared a cup of wine and he shared it with his disciples and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, which will be shed for you. Everyone here this morning who is a saved person following Jesus Christ faithfully as a disciple is welcome to come. Every saved sinner is welcome to come today, amen, and celebrate the supper. This supper is for sinners, but for saved sinners. But if you're not a Christian today, we urge you to turn to Christ, but do not partake of this supper. Gluten-free, communion is to my left. Alcoholic-free is to my left. And there's communion in the back for those of you who are in the back. The wine cup is marked by twine. Do whatever your conscience permits. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in and celebrate the Lord's work. Amen.